Good morning, and welcome to the Human Instrumentality Podcast. My name is Ian Corey. And I'm Dio Brando, immortal vampire. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm Joseph Schaefer. And this is the second episode of our season on Satoshi Kon. This week, we're covering the history of shonen manga and then taking a closer look at JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Expect spoilers for the third arc of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure and maybe some other arcs too. Human Instrumentality Podcast, Season 2, Episode 2, Rolling. As we've stated before, the anime industry in Japan often exists downstream from Japan's even more ubiquitous comics industry. Unlike Evangelion, the majority of popular anime are adapted from an already popular comic series or manga, usually serialized in weekly or monthly publications that contain several series at a time. Also, many popular animators begin as manga creators, including Satoshi Kon. And even though this series is about Satoshi Kon, he won't show up much in this particular episode. Nonetheless, to understand the context behind his first foray into directing, it's important to understand manga and one trend in manga in particular, shonen stories. So strap in, because this one's long, though not quite as long as your average shonen series. The manga industry of the 80s featured a variety of popular genres dramas, comedies, science fiction, historical epics, and so on. Unlike the American comics industry, these genres were, and still are, marketed to people across age ranges from elementary students to adult professionals. Like American comics, though, the best-known manga cater to the younger end of teenage boys. The genre aimed at that demographic is known as shonen, or young boy comics, and shonen comics are the bread and butter of the big daddy of all manga magazines, Weekly Shonen Jump. We are never going to recap an entire shonen series in this podcast, because though they're popular, they're often more interested in popular entertainment than topics that Ian and I focus on. Uh, and even the most sophisticated shonen series, such as say, Full Metal Alchemist, have long story arcs that would require years to cover in some cases. Even so, you've got to know what shonen meant at the time to understand where Khan began. Shonen was always popular. Young teenage boys will always be an in-demand market for media. But the genre experienced an economic boom in the 80s, largely thanks to one series. Dragon Ball. Written and illustrated by Akira Toriyama, a poster artist living in his parents' basement, Dragon Ball was published in 1984 and has sold an estimated 300 million copies to date, making it one of the best-selling manga of all time. It's been adapted into multiple long-running television series, as well as more than 20 animated films. Toriyama has kept coming back to it in various sequels, which have all been animated as well. We won't get into the story of Dragon Ball since it's so popular in the United States, but in brief, 
It's a broad action comedy loosely based on the epic mythological poem, The Legend of the Monkey King, with a dash of Aladdin thrown in. The series follows a preternaturally strong goofball named Goku and his quest to keep a set of wish-granting MacGuffins called Dragon Balls from falling into the wrong hands. Toriyama's style emphasized recognizable and expressive characters, juvenile slapstick comedy, cliffhanger storytelling, and kinetic stylized action. In other words, crack for kids. As the series continued, combat, specifically martial arts combat, became the centerpiece of Toriyama's storytelling as he took more and more influence from Bruce Lee movies, Jackie Chan movies, and Western superhero stories. He also took a cue from one of the most popular manga that directly preceded Dragon Ball, the ultra-violent post-apocalyptic fist-fighting series Fist of the North Star, which will come back up later. Those aspects of the story took center stage when Goku grew up into a muscular action hunk in the latter half of the series, which was animated as Dragon Ball Z, maybe the most recognizable anime in America to this day. Dragon Ball set the template for the Shonen series as we know it. An underestimated but talented social outcast is initiated into a mildly supernatural world and undertakes a series of quests or arcs, usually based around defeating one particularly iconic villain in single combat, often at the culmination of some kind of martial arts tournament. Along the way, the protagonist gathers a band of also iconic sidekicks and helpers, who tend to begin as minor villains themselves before being redeemed by the plucky hero's purity of heart and getting smacked around a little bit. It's a formula that combines escapism, adolescent power fantasy, mythic scope, serialized storytelling, and heartwarming but surface-level reflections on the importance of friendship. Shonen synthesizes these ideas into an easily understood more easily commodified, and hyper-satisfying package. This formula spawned such economic and cultural powerhouses as Yu Yu Hakusho, Bleach, Naruto, and the best-selling manga of all time, One Piece. If you saw it on Toonami or Adult Swim, and it ran for more than one season, odds are it was a shonen show. Inuyasha is an edge case. And while these stories have remarkable longevity and cultural clout, not to mention that they can be highly lucrative, they're fairly formulaic and adhere to tropes that Toriyama either invented or popularized. But not all great shonen series are interested in sticking to tropes or giving the audience something predictable or satisfying. For my money, the best of all of them is much more interested in putting an uneasy feeling in your stomach, teasing your sexual imagination, and convincing you to take up boxing. That series is the aptly titled JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Now that I have stopped time for just a moment, I wanted to get some thoughts on shonen manga as a genre out of the way with you, Ian, before we go mm. deep on JoJo's, because my guess is we're going to go pretty deep on JoJo's 
and I don't want to miss the context, <laughs> right? So yes. let's do it. So as you mentioned in the outline, which you so graciously wrote for this episode, um, chances are like, I, I would say that most of our listeners, including ourselves probably got introduced to anime through some sort of shonen series. And I feel like it's important to put that on the table first. Um, so I, I'm an example of that. I distinctly remember seeing Dragon Ball Z on, on television and kind of like running into it by accident as a child, like probably too young or I, maybe the reason that it was so appealing is it felt like I was discovering it, like maybe a hair too young, but it appealed to like everything that I, uh, didn't know I wanted from like action TV. Yeah. And I sort of view it as like the hook that brought me to this exact moment of having an anime podcast with you. So here we are <laughs> for sure. I had a similar experience. I remember, I remember the day that Dragon Ball Z started airing on Toonami. I don't remember if it was one of the launch shows, but it was certainly one of their early shows. Um, mm -hmm. And I know it wasn't their biggest ratings hit. I believe their biggest ratings hit was always Gundam Wing. Um, yep. But Dragon Ball Z, just I remember when I was a kid, it made an impact um, for the reasons you described and also because I think there's one critical element, particularly when we were uh, young, that shonen anime has that most other sh entertainment aimed at kids didn't. Serialized storytelling. The story continued from episode to episode. So mm -hmm. you needed to watch them all to know what was happening. But also critically, particularly for Dragon Ball Z, everything happened just slowly enough that you could miss a week and you probably wouldn't miss anything big. Right. Unless you had extremely bad luck of the draw. But, you know. Oh, he's still fighting Cell? Okay. Two months later, <laughs> he's still fighting Cell? They're still in the same beam fight. Got it. And then, right. you know, you're sick for one day or, like, you know, the neighbor comes over one day and you're like, wait, how did they kill him? It was neck and neck yesterday. It's been neck and neck all year. <laughs> Yeah, this is a, a crucial part of, you're right, like to, to, to hone in on the exact pacing of Shonen is so important because it's absolutely the thing that made it feel distinct and bigger in like all ways than the other shows that I was watching at the time as a kid. So I'll just, I'll just kind of tell the story just to like, I don't know, maybe like the younger listeners don't quite understand how dire the situation was for finding anime pre-internet. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Tell the Gen Zs what the fuck is up. <laughs> um, you kids with your Dragon Ball supers, let me let me bring you all the way back to Dragon Ball Z <laughs> in the early 90s. I pulled my, my friend and I were having a sleepover after seeing Men in Black in theaters. Oh, uh, good. Which was already like that was the greatest thing I'd ever seen as a kid. Uh we wake up too early and we're like it's a Sunday morning. Nothing good is going to be on. Like you know, there's there's no X-Men, there's no Batman animated adventures. There's just like 
nothing. So we're just like up at six in the morning, kind of aimlessly flipping around. And we see this like image of a man torn in half <laughs> lying on the desert floor and a gravelly voice saying last time on dragon ball z <laughs> um <laughs> and we find out that some schmuck named yamcha had just been killed by a green creature that emerged from the soil and we're like they're allowing this kind of violence in a television show for kids <laughs> and we were hooked immediately right uh Little did we know that Yamcha dies all the time. Death is not all that big of a deal in Dragon Ball Z. But like the extremity of the violence at first was just like, holy shit. Well, and the characters were like allowed to die, right? Like mm -hmm. you got to understand, like, it, I don't think anyone, anyone gets this, but like in the 80s, it, it was de rigueur in, in even like rated G or rated PG films to put people, specifically children, in mortal danger constantly. And then in the 90s, something happens. It's probably like insert Tipper Gore, whatever, who, who the fuck knows. I'm not going to claim to know exactly. But <laughs> right. Gangster rap ruined everything. And then <laughs> thanks, Easy E. Um, <laughs> yes, whatever happens. And suddenly entertainment for children or young adults or whatever, unless it's Goosebumps, becomes like remarkably tame. And like even Goosebumps was like. A, a little edgy uh, like right at the start there it was like oh wow ooh, people get like there's monsters and stuff what's going on it's not all you know sunshine and rainbowsy right but then like in dragon ball z it's like no 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 people die they get straight up yeah. murdered and like the bad guy will not like slink away and say i'll get you next time gadget it's like no 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 he must be killed by violent yes. force that mm -hmm. is the that is the goal. Our goal is to commit murder on that particular alien, um, which was like it's this sounds so silly to say, but like at that particular place in time, you just didn't get that in cartoons yeah. from America. It felt like the first time that the show was taking me seriously. Like a television show was like not pulling its punches on me as a viewer. Right. Even as a kid, I feel like you can kind of recognize that like, you know, like for example, with the X-Men animated show, which I really enjoyed as a kid, but it's like Wolverine's running around here with like knives coming out of his hands. Right. And only ends up fighting robots who aren't alive. And anytime they fight like a human, Nothing happens. And you just can kind of sense, even as a kid, the like disconnect between what you're expecting to happen and what happens. And watching Dragon Ball Z as like, you know, like a 10 year old or whatever it was and, and just seeing like, oh, yeah, like if you shoot a laser th at someone that hard, whatever that means, it will just go right through them. Right. You know? I felt like I was being respected by the show. Of course, it would then proceed to waste my time in the way that only Shonen can. But well, it was it got me hooked. Yeah, we'll get to the wasting time. But first, I think yes. that you brought up the X Men animated series is really interesting. Again, I don't want to spend too too much time on this, but I've now revisited some of the X Men animated series, and also like may I shout out Gargoyles. Um, if you got Disney Plus, watch the two first two seasons of Gargoyles. That shit's dope. Those series, in retrospect, now as an adult, 
in a more subtle way, I, I think did respect me more. They just didn't feel mm. like they respected me because what was going on didn't have that realistic level of violence. But the, the difference is like, you know, in the X-Men man animated series, sure. Wolverine only ever cuts up robots, but they're having a not very thinly coded conversation about like race problems in America and coming out, uh, what does it mean to be born different from other people for no reason and not know why? You know, mm -hmm. um, Rogue and Cyclops and or it's Gene and Cyclops and, and Wolverine have like a love triangle that has they, there are feelings involved. And it's like there are episodes where it's like, I am sad Wolverine. I feel bad. And it's impacting mm -hmm. like my performance at my job, which is being a superhero. Whereas, you know. Dragon Ball Z is super fucking violent and like has a has a continuity of plot, which is good. But it's like Goku gets married and has kids and not once can you ever imagine like him actually having feelings for a human. Like he, right. the only yeah, yeah. the only interior life Goku has is I'm hungry or I want to punch something. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. He is a fascinating character to think about as an adult because his brain is so empty. Like it's just almost like a feat of writing a character so beloved. And so like just a, like cosmically dim witted in some ways, right? You know, you're right. Like the emotional stakes of dragon ball Z are by comparison to the American shows that we're talking about. Like, really paper thin it's these really broad archetypes right. that are sort of painted and constantly like repainted every new arc without ever changing all that much like vegeta i guess has like like you know as you described the a lot of the characters that were villains become heroes and that's like the extent of the arc of their character right you know, in a lot of ways and Vegeta has like the interesting tension of constantly wanting to be better than Goku and not being able to, which is always good to like, just kind of keep dramatic tension going, but there's not much to it. It's basically just that like all of the characters can be described in single sentences or like three sentences at max. Right. And that adds to this ability to kind of like, you can jump in at any time. Like if it, you know, eventually I started going to like the the video rental stores and being like, oh shit, they've got like three episodes of Dragon Ball Z on this VHS. Like, I don't know what arc this is. I don't know anything, but like, this is my only access. I'm going to grab this. I'm going to tell like my three friends who trust me for some reason to pick entertainment for the next sleepover. Like, no, we got to watch Dragon Ball Z, you know? And they'll all get it immediately. Like you right. can kind of get people on board for the characters very quickly. So there's kind of like a low barrier of entry that is aided by the thinness of the characters as written. Sure. And, and in, to be fair to like Shonen as a genre, Dragon Ball Z is a little bit of a paper tiger. Um, mm -hmm. you know, like it's easy to get into, but it, it, it does get kind of samey, even like, Toriyama's admitted that by the end, he was absolutely out of ideas. He was making it up as he went along. He was bored by it. You know, it was, he was a little bit, he was phoning it in. I mean, you watch the Majin Buu arc and you're like, oh my God. man, you yeah. are, this is somnambulant. Um, yeah, it should have ended with the cell arc because the, the thing is, is like, he just couldn't quit Goku. Right. Like, 
the show clearly needed to move on to being Gohan's story, but Toriyama just can't quit Goku, dude. He just keeps coming back to him over and over and over again, which that's a little foreshadowing for why I think Jojo is really good. Right. But, and well, and now Goku's a streetwear guy. There is this weird thing where like sh- anime in general is having like a comeback, but Shonen mm. in particular, I think is having like a comeback with like, and this will also tie into Jojo's a little bit, but like, you know, Goku's now kind of like a hip thing to have on your t-shirt. It seems. Yeah. Um, even- I mean, it was back then too. Like I remember seeing kids who had the Dragon Ball Z you know, tall tees basically that had just like all of the characters on the back and being like, that guy looks awesome. Yeah. That guy. It, it was this, this, it was this like interesting, uh, it was totally like the hype beasts of that time. You right. Know? Like I think about like my friend Tyler, I don't know if you're listening, Tyler, but shouts out if you are like, he was the first guy to have like the coolest dragon ball t-shirts. And then he had like the coolest metal shirts when we were all getting into metal. Right. And like, then became like a sneaker head, you know, like it, that line I think tracks through like all of culture. There is, there is absolutely like an ideological through line between shonen anime and sneaker heads. I, absolutely. I, I don't yeah. understand what it is. And that's because I don't understand sneaker heads enough, but I think you're cool. Um, well, I think there's like a, a sideways connection to a lot of like sports mentality with, shonen right stuff that's the other thing it was like the saturday morning cartoon for athletes too it's like you could be a, a sci-fi nerd and also like a track dork and there's something in dragon ball z for both of you right because it's mm-hmm. like oh this is chinese mythology but it's also like oh this is about working out exactly yeah 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 there was a uh, an nba rookie a few years ago i think he's in his third year now De'Aaron fox on the sacramento kings that like when he got drafted you know everyone like found his twitter account of course and his background was just like all dragon ball z stuff yeah and it's like yeah of course like of course someone who's like devoting that much time to being like i have to get better every single day i've got to get to the next level would find something really inspiring about like these like martial arts themed shonen shows that are all about like training and developing your skills and like becoming the best version of yourself to defeat your next enemy and so on 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 and so on. Well, and and like sports, shonen is so financially viable. Um, I just want to read mm-hmm. off some some stats to you, right? Number one selling manga. Of all, I'm this. I'm getting a thought off this off Wikipedia. So like this may not be totally correct, but let's just go here. Number one selling manga series of all time. One Piece, one hundred volumes. Um, still going. By the way, four hundred ninety million volume sales. Um, average sale per one Tankobon. I guess we should cover this maybe briefly. A Tankobon is like a, a trade paperback for manga. They're thicker mm-hmm. than like a Marvel trade paperback, but they're also like shorter. So it's pretty much the amount of content. The different size shelves, whatever. Almost five million. Number two is Golgo thirteen, which is one of those things that's been running since nineteen sixty eight, and it only <laughs> it just ended two weeks ago because Takao Saito just died. R.I.P. Saito. Um, your whole career was watching people was drawing people snipe one another. Dragon Ball, almost uh, more than two hundred sixty million sales. Average sales per volume, six point one nine million copies of each of those fucking tanko bonds. Um, it smokes One Piece. It smokes Naruto. Naruto's at number five with like three and a half million per tanko bond. 
this list is wild. If you want to like find um um like so for for reference, if you want to look at a manga, and this is just the Evangelion manga, which is a huge success, also. Only 25 million copies sold worldwide. Mm -hmm. Average sales per Tankoban, only two million. Uh bonkers. The 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 degree to which these these martial arts fucking copy like cookie cutter shows make money when they take off is berserk no pun intended (laughs) yeah i think it's important to maybe then also broaden this out from just like i i am of the sub generation to which dragon ball z is like the beginning and end of my shonen experience but the interesting thing is that like if you were born like two years after me, you're probably like a bleach or a Naruto person instead. And if you're like born one year after that, maybe you're a one piece person. It feels like there's very much these like micro generational divides that kind of like slot people. And of course I know people that are just like shonen junkies and love all of it, but there does seem to be a distinct, like everyone finds their one guy that they follow forever along one of these paths you know what i mean yeah i mean i definitely think right after so dragon ball ends in 1995 by the way dragon ball and dragon ball z are the same manga series um there's a time jump in it uh Mm -hmm. but pretty much right after that you get like the the shonen the the heavy hitter golden age which it seems like has like just ended it seems like that's when you get one piece is still going, but at one point in time in the early 2000s, you had one piece going Naruto going and bleach going. And they're, they're all just in cultural juggernauts. I never got into one piece. I read, I read like one issue and it just didn't, it's not the, for me. The pirate stuff is just, yeah, not for me. Yeah. I, I'm like, I, I'm like, I, I get it. It's a swimsuit. They're pirates, but he's made of rubber. Okay. Whatever. Fuck it. Mm-hmm. People dig it. It's yeah. whatever. Um, I read, I read some Naruto for a while. I thought it was pretty good. I just like never committed to it. Well, I was going to say, I actually think Naruto is pretty good. I, I actually mm-hmm. have like general fond feelings of naruto i think that both i think that naruto is like a more sophisticated iteration of dragon ball z that complicates it in interesting ways without really mucking with the formula too much it's it's a much more sophisticated product so like if i can give naruto a recommendation for someone who wants to read 72 volumes of comics it's a lot right um but i'm gonna be honest the the one of these that meant the most to me was bleach and bleach is also why i don't think i i thought i'd sworn off shonen for good because <laughs> i i'm having difficulty thinking of like there's a there's a particular phenomenon that is like end of anime disappointment right yeah 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 i know that some people have it with evangelion i don't yeah, I have it with bleach. Um, you, I, it's remarkable to watch someone absolutely like run to their creative end of their rope and keep going half-heartedly. And you just keep, keep reading. 
just for the sake of like, well, I'm pot committed now. I've sang 300 fucking hours into this. I want to see how it ends. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. With completely unsatisfactorily. Uh, no spoilers there, but like, if you like the end of Bleach, I guess you're out there, but I don't know who the fuck you are. Like, I need your weed guy. From an outsider's perspective, I've always thought of Bleach as like the Dexter of Shonen in that like, yes. the people that like, even the people that loved it hate the end of it to such an extreme degree that it's, it just seems like remarkable even amongst the phenomenon of end of show disappointment. Um, it, that's a good, another interesting parallel I think might be Game of Thrones because he, yeah, that's, yeah. You get to the point, there is like a, a sequence that is the red, it's the red wedding of, of Shonen, but it's like, it's the reveal of the big bad guy and what is his power and his power is bonkers. It's completely broken. And the, the logical end of that, of that issue is, and the bad guys killed everyone and won. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the only reasonable outcome. And like, you see the guy just, you, you can almost like see him stop drawing mid, mid sword swing. And he's like, I'm going to have to pull so much shit out of my ass for there to continue being a story after this. And, <laughs> and, and it limps along for the second half of the series. Like, please justify this incredibly silly decision you've made. Mm-hmm. Um, and he never does. I think we should mention it's it's really important to highlight the the fact that this genre originated in a sequential comic book form sure. and not in a television form because it helps explain a lot of the things that are like really idiosyncratic about it including the kind of like stories being drawn out to absurd lengths the sort of running out of steam but needing to like keep throwing things into the fire on a weekly basis. Right. And also the, the particular pace of not even just the story, but of the action within the story. Right. Um, which I think is like maybe the biggest impediment to someone who like maybe is into the sort of stuff that like Shonen w- is into in terms of like action and crazy violence and super moves and martial arts and yada, yada, yada. I know a lot of people that just start watching uh, like g- give like any example of a particular shonen show and are just like everything is taking too long this doesn't make sense i thought this planet was supposed to blow up in five minutes it's been 20 episodes what gives and like all of that kind of stuff i feel like is all just idiomatic to the fact that they come from comic books right and that time works differently on a page than it does on the screen that's part of it. I mean, but the other part is like, you got to take the materialist view too. And that is that let's be honest, all of these shows are one man extended improv sets. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's someone doing an improv set for Golgo 13s since 1968. The dude started improving a story about an assassin and didn't end it. He died first of old <laughs> age. Right. Right. And, and so the thing is, most people just don't have that that mental muscle to just improv one thing forever and have it all be good and make sense at the end. It's like it's almost an impossible task. Right. And it, I, I don't think Shonen fans necessarily want it to resolve in this kind of like crescendo of all of the story ties coming together. Like that's not the fan experience either. They just kind of want to be entertained arc to arc 
right. you know, build up to a big fight. The big fight is cool on to the next one. Right. So I think like the, the fan experience also does not necessarily like demand more foresight than the improv esque style of writing requires. So there is kind of a symbiosis there, but it can also go like extremely wrong in the way that you're describing with bleach. I think some of them work better when they have an ending that is planned. I'm a fan of planned endings, right? Mm -hmm. And, and Mm -hmm. I, one of the strengths of Naruto is it does go on too long, but it has an end. And it's obvious that like maybe he didn't plan it right at the start, but at some point in time, well before the end, it's obvious that Masahi Kishimoto like knew what the ending would be and started Mm -hmm. writing toward that. Right. Controversial series, but um, attack on Titan technically a shonen series, I guess, very different from all of these. I would almost like call it more of a horror manga than anything else, but at- it's definitely like post shonen, I would say. It's yeah. like it's absorbed shonenness into itself, but it's it's clearly doing something else with it. It's in the same zone as Full Metal Alchemist, where it's like taking yeah, the yeah. shonen tropes and and making something more cohesive and singular and thought out with it. And right. both of those like for better or for worse, have endings that were planned. That it's like, mm-hmm. here's the character's emotional arc. This is where it ends. The end reflects the philosophy, the worldview I'm putting out there. Um, it's just that worldview might be really fucking gross if you're Attack on Titan. Or remarkably wholesome if you're Full Metal Alchemist. Um, <laughs> but I think that neither of those series could exist. Those series ran because JoJo's Bizarre Adventure walked. And stumbled yes. and fell and then got up and walked again. And then in its own time started fucking running, baby. Um, <laughs> I, I love Jojo's bizarre adventure. We've stopped time for longer than I planned on it. Ian, do you mind if I undo the world so we can get into the world of Jojo's bizarre adventure? Let's get into it. Jojo's bizarre adventure is not the commercial dynamo that Dragon Ball is. But it's still an iconic and successful Japanese comics property that commands a dedicated fan base. It's been ongoing for over 30 years in comic form and has sold over 100 million copies. It's also been adapted into animation twice, first by a team including Satoshi Kon in the early 90s and more recently by David Animation, which is probably the version audiences are most familiar with. However, JoJo's is more stylish and subversive than the average shonen series, often undercutting the conventions of the genre it's a part of, which made it a good fit for someone like Khan. The series is drawn and written by Hirohiko Araki, an artist born in Sendai in 1960. Like many manga artists, including Khan, Araki got his start at the age of 20 after winning runner-up in a comics contest, then publishing a few short-lived series. But unlike Khan, Araki had no successful mentor to foster his talent. Instead, he had an editor who gave him a piece of harsh, life-changing feedback early in his career. That feedback was this. Your work is too derivative. Next time, do something more original. In response, Araki dove deep into his most esoteric and unmanga-like influences. Here's a quick 
overview of Iraqi's panoply of extracurricular sources. <clears throat> the synthesis art of Paul Gauguin, especially his bold lines and flat, splashy use of color. Italian Renaissance artists, especially depictions of muscular heroes like Michelangelo's David. Contemporary fashion illustrators, especially those featured in Vogue magazine, including Tony Viramonte and Antonio Lopez. I hope I pronounced those right. Horror films, especially the effects-driven 80s horror of John Carpenter and David Cronenberg. And of course, non-Japanese popular music, especially classic rock, jazz, prog, and heavy metal. The result was a style unique to Araki. Bold compositions featuring hypermuscular men dressed in bleeding-edge fashion. These characters connected the action star physique of the 80s with Western classical ideals, then queered them with effeminate or outright homoerotic clothing and angular, uncomfortable, but anatomically correct poses. And in an art form that's typically rendered in black and white, Araki made art that worked just as well, if not better, in full color. The kind of art that you just had to pick up and look at, even if you didn't like the story. And the story was about as unconventional as the artwork. Whereas most shonen series follow a single protagonist as they overcome multiple obstacles, even if they're part of a family of fighters, JoJo's follows the story of the family itself, the Joestars, over a series of decades and even centuries. Each arc, with a discrete beginning, middle, and end, tells the story of one Joestar, usually with a first name that starts with Joe, hence Jojo. The hero of one arc tends to pass the baton to the hero of the next. In this way, Jojo's story more resembles a traditional Greek or Roman epic than a shonen series. And like a Greek epic, Jojo's doesn't concern itself with likable main characters. Joseph Joestar, for example, is a petty crook who marries into wealth, then cheats on his loving wife and fathers a child out of wedlock over the course of three arcs. What's more, while Jojo does contain supernatural elements, it's set in the real world. And not only in Japan. Its first arc takes place in Victorian England, its second in World War II-era America, um, as well as South American Europe, but at least it begins in New York, and so on. But JoJo's arcs also focus on different kinds of stories. One could be a murder mystery, while another could be more like a travelogue. And for that reason, they're fairly modular and self-contained. Readers didn't need to read Jonathan Joestar's story to understand Joseph Joestar's, and so on. Which was good, since unlike Dragon Ball, JoJo's took years to find its groove. The first arc of the series, called Phantom Blood, was released in 1986, and was more or less a blend of Fist of the North Star and the then-new video game Castlevania. In my opinion, JoJo's didn't find its identity until 1989, when Araki began the series' third arc, the Stardust Crusaders arc, which is the section of the story that Khan helped adapt. Stardust Crusaders captures the imagination better than its predecessors because it introduces Araki's most unique supernatural element, stands. A stand is a projection of each character's subconscious through which they express various supernatural abilities. 
often named after tarot cards, mythological figures, or rock bands, each stand reflects something about its user's inner psychology. Like the angels in Evangelion, there's something inexplicable about the stands, and many operate more like puzzles to solve than opponents to pulverize. All these decisions, both artistic and iconic, realistic and dreamlike, made JoJo's bizarre adventure the closest thing to a metatextual critique of shonen anime that existed at the time, and the perfect choice of intellectual property for a young Satoshi Kon. We aren't going to recap Kon's adaptation of Stardust Crusaders since, for various reasons, its plot is absolutely nonsensical, but we are going to talk about it, as well as JoJo's as a whole. So, Joseph, <laughs> here we are. We get to talk about JoJo's. I'm really psyched to finally get into this show with you. I'm really glad that you're psyched. So just so the listeners are aware, as we spoke about in the last episode, I initially pushed back against doing a Satoshi Kon series. And the, the concession that I demanded from Ian was, <laughs> I know he only did a little bit of work on the OVA that most people haven't watched. I know he only directed one episode of the OVA, but we need to do Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. And we can't, we need to do like all of it. Like I insisted. <laughs> um, so this will be cool because, you know, I was, a, I was a Jojo's fan, kind of a fresh Jojo's fan when Ian brought this up. And I don't think Ian had ever really fucked with this series very much. Is that right? I had, I remember when I was on Tumblr in the early 2010s, around like 2013, 14, kind of in that zone, I guess. I remember seeing people starting to lose their shit about this show and having like maybe the, like just kind of having like a weird, like what the hell is this reaction? It particularly, cause like, you know, we didn't talk about it in the previous Shonen block, but like. These shows have a, a, a an interesting relationship with the male body. We can say that. And for sure. Please go on. <laughs> but it's generally not something that's like acknowledged in world the way like like Goku looks like he's made out of ropes of meat. But right. No, it doesn't really call attention to itself once you just like kind of get the the language of the show. Whereas like once I started seeing these clips and, and GIFs and images of, of, you know, the Joe stars at all rolling through my timeline, I was like, okay, it's not just that these guys are like outrageously jacked, but they know they're outrageously jacked. You know what I mean? Right. And I was just like, whoa, okay, this is a lot to take in right now. And, but my interest was peaked. And so I've always wanted an excuse to check it out. And it seems like all of the people that I know that are into anime and are not dumb about it kind of really fuck with this show. So I was like, I, I have to give this a shot. Okay. Okay. Um, so one of two places we could go with this then. Do we, do we want to get the con part of, of this story out of the way? Or do we want to go into uh, what... Your journey through the first three arcs of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Which which of those two? Because there's stuff to talk about in both that is fascinating. Yes. Um, I think 
it's tough because the timeline of both these things existing in the world as well as my timeline of ingesting them is like really weird and idiosyncratic and out of order. So I watched the first arc in its entirety, which came out after the OVA. And then I watched like some of the second arc, then watched the OVA, then tried to continue to watch the second arc failed and then started watching the third arc just to kind of like catch up to where the OVA is. Cause at least in my, from my understanding, the OVA's release has also been like bizarrely edited. Like the first version that came out only had the last like six parts of it. So like it had the, the three con segments as well as the three preceding it, but not the beginning of the story. Right. And the beginning of the story was re added into it at a later time frame. Right. Okay. This probably just, this is the kind of gobbledygook that turns people off of anime. What we've just done Absolutely. in trying to explain it. So let, let's go this way. So in the sure. early nineties, Khan is one of this group of people that's commissioned to do uh, a short VHS series for Jojo's bizarre adventure. Stardust Crusaders, the arc is beloved. It's also long. It's very long. It's not the longest Jojo arc, but it's the first one that's really big, like mm -hmm. proper mm -hmm. shonen sized, right? A full year of television's worth. You can't compress it in, into a VHS. So what they had to do is just cherry pick sequences to, to, to make it work, right? And wisely, I think they decided that they would do the final boss fight. Yes. Because I can't start with Dio. It's so good. The end of Stardust Crusaders is so good. It makes me so happy. I rewatch it just for fun. I've done this multiple times. Um, but so wisely, they're like, okay, we got to do the Dio fight. Mm -hmm. That's two episodes right there. We've got four more. What are we going to do? Um, and for whatever reason, they... They began the series where they pick up the last Joe bro. I should explain this. I should explain this term. J Particularly in Stardust Crusaders, jo Jojo's friends are more interesting than Jojo himself. He's Jojo's kind of like a blank slate for you to like project yourself into frequently like the B cast. This is like Evangelion too, right? Mm -hmm. The B cast is often more interesting than the A cast. Right. And part of the fun of the Shonen series experience is like you pick up the, the Dungeons and Dragons party, you finding the B cast. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So they start the series not with explaining to you what the stakes are, not with explaining to you what a stand is, not with explaining <laughs> to you who are the Joe stars, who's Dio, why are they fighting, why are they in Egypt? None of that. They start. With you meeting the last Joe bro in the series. The last Joe bro in the series, by the way, is a dog. <laughs> yeah, it's ludicrous. Like, I'm so glad that I watched some of the more recent anime first. Because I, like, I just picture dropping in. So f the first thing you get is this, like, really crazy opening sequence of, like, you know, the Aztecs doing a ritual sacrifice of like, you know, this like impossibly booksome woman to make this other guy like pour blood on himself. So he gets like outrageously brolic. 
and you're just like, I'm in, this looks crazy. Like what, what could this possibly be? And then it's like five fashion models hanging around in the desert talking about stands, which I don't know what those are. And then a dog shows up and they're like, ah, this is another stand user. So the first thing you know about the world is that there are stand users and one of them is a dog. And it's like, this is the least helpful way to begin this story. It, it's the worst. I can't think of a worse way to, to begin this story. It, there is a, there's a thematic sense to it. We can get into that later, but yeah, that's where it starts. And then you just get a couple random stand fights and then you get the Dio fight, which is great. Um, it's amazing. And Khan directs it really well. It's worth noting that like Khan's sense of tone and the Jojo's tone are at odds. And Khan makes some, ch- he doesn't make a lot of like substantive changes from the page to what he adapts, but in terms of his pacing, he's much more like serious and mournful than Jojo's mm-hmm. is like J- Jojo has a sense of tragic irony but it's not really interested in making you feel bad. It doesn't yeah, like, it yeah, doesn't yeah. want you to feel pathos. It wants you to feel weird. Right. Right. So it would rather juxtapose like, does this weird image make you horny with body horror with a normal sh- shonen fight that ha- uses like Sherlock Holmes inductive reasoning to solve it. In an unconventional way. Like it's more interested in that than like, oh, by the way, his best friend like sacrificed his life to help them beat Dio. Right. Yes. Yeah. This is, I think a really interesting thing about Cone's early, like pre canonical Cone stuff. Right. uh, Is it's taking, he's taking on these like genre products and taking them almost like too seriously. He takes it too seriously. Which is really interesting because some of so much of his later work, which we'll get into when we get there, is like him kind of like winking at genre conventions and being like sort of knowingly aware of how ridiculous all of them are. But like when given the chance, like given this already sort of absurd on the face of it series, he's just like, oh, I'm going to tell this as straight and as like weighty as possible, which is a really interesting choice for like. I d- I'm glad I now know this about young Khan because it helps explain like him sort of like loosening up as his career goes on. Right. Yeah. It makes sense, but it's, it's too weighty. It's too, it's, he's too, he takes the material like too serious. Jojo doesn't take even itself like very seriously. Like mm-hmm. it's all kind of a joke and Jojo's knows it. Jojo's yeah. in on the joke. It wants you to be in on the joke. It's like, isn't this fucking ridiculous? Can't we just all together be happy at how ridiculous this idea is? Totally. That's so much the joy of it. So I think we should perhaps talk about like the rules and the experience of the show before we talk specifically about the material that Khan directed. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think we should. But also at the same time, like I said, there wouldn't be a lot of Khan in this episode. I don't know that there's much more to say beyond, you know, it's it's like the Dio fight is his only foray as like that I can really see as like a pure action director. Yeah. And he does it very well. He does it very well. And it has some specifically Khan stuff in it. What's what's the specific Khan stuff in it to you? That's interesting to me. Like. 
it's you made this point when we were talking previously, which is that like so Dio, the the primary villain of this arc, and I would say in my experience watching the first three arcs is kind of like clearly the villain of the show writ large. And I don't know whether that continues into arc four. So like, forgive me if I'm talking out of turn by saying that it, it does not, but that's okay. It's unlike Dragon Ball Z. He knows not to bring back Mecha Dio and then <laughs> right. kill Mecha Dio for no reason when he realizes it was a bad idea two weeks later. <laughs> right. Like it <laughs> totally, totally. You know, he's like, um, this is my big villain. I'm going to let my big villain die. It's done. Yeah. And I, I think that it's, we'll get into all of the multitude of ways that Jojo is better than Dragon Ball of like soon, but right. First, the, the specific con stuff Dio's stand, which is if you're not familiar with the lingo yet, it's basically just like his particular superpower, his X-Men power, however you want to phrase it is the ability to stop time. And so it takes a while for the main characters to kind of pick up on this as his power. And so how would you, show time travel or time stoppage in in the context of the characters viewing it who don't yet understand that that's what's happening and you do it through editing exactly so there's the the what one of the things that i do like about con like really making this like serious and almost like extremely dialing into the horror of element of jojo is you get some like real shocker kind of moments like the you know the good guys storm into the castle and they're like ready to kick ass and they like bust open the coffin that supposedly has the vampiric dio in it and then what the person who kicked open the coffin is now in the coffin right and it's just like completely bewildering and it's such like the kind of thing that like you can't do in live action it takes like such quick editing to make it work and it's as disorienting to the characters themselves as it is for the viewer and that yes. to me is like a particularly con kind of thing to do. And he'll like develop that technique. It sort of like happens multiple times over the course of the OVA where you have like Jotaro going at Dio and then ending up somewhere else and being like, how the fuck did I get over here to, you know, eventually of course the, the heroes figure it out and there are twists and turns within that action scene itself but that early disorientation and that kind of like embodiment of the disorientation like you're seeing how the main characters are unsure of their own reality and unsure of what the rules are that's perfect blue yeah you know he learns all of his like tricks that he's gonna use later in his career from the dio fight yes exactly it, yeah it's it's the arc of like animation history with him is different if they put him on a different episode mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like props to them for figuring out like Khan, who's never directed anything is a background artist for them being like, not nah, give him the Dio fight. That's what? a huge look for like yeah. a rookie basically. Right. And my understanding is like, that's what OVAs are or were at the time for like a lot of these animators is it's like, we're going to lose money on this. We know that this is mm -hmm. like, this is like a thing to put in our resume to be like, I did the Dio fight. Give me a job. Yeah. 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 Totally. It's like, uh, it's interesting. It's kind of like that. There was that period of time where there was just like all of the indie directors getting like vacuumed up by like the like into the bigger franchises yeah i mean it's i guess it's just the story of hollywood right but 
this is a similar thing of like, look, I made this like incredibly awesome fight scene work. I made it disgusting. I made it horrifying. And please give me the money to make perfect blue now. You right. Know? Like, <laughs> well, we'll get into perfect blue. Can I, can I ping pong on one thing there with Khan? Please. There is, so there's one interesting thing and it's, it's also in the David animation version too, but there's one thing we're going to talk a little bit about Khan's politics in the course of this series. Sure. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't usually go to Jojo's for politics, at least not for good. Po- well, <laughs> yeah, for good for good politics later. There's problems with the second arc. I think the the second arc is period appropriate, which is for better and for worse. <laughs> right. I'm sure that's what he was thinking at the time. We'll get into it. Anyway, point being, there's a sequence where where Dio um there needs to be a car chase. He can he can stop time, but he can't stop time for an indefinite amount of time. If that his period of time inside of stopped time is limited. Right. Mm -hmm. Which Mm -hmm. means even though his power is bonkers, chasing a car is not a good, effective use of it. It's better for him to have a car, but he's a vampire. He can't drive. He's been at the bottom (laughs) of the ocean since 1880. Right. Right. (laughs) So he decides to like kidnap a dude in a nice car. He finds the nicest car he can see on the street. He's like, this is my car now (laughs) goes in the car. He's like, you person in the back. You now drive the car. Turns out it's a United States senator. And like the U.S. senator tries to like, tries to body Dio. And Dio just like stops time and beats the shit out of him and keeps sticking him in the driver's seat. Whatever he tries to leave. like, no, you drive now. Mm-hmm. You're my mm-hmm. driver now. I, it's, it's very funny. It's very Jojo. But I think it says something about Khan that he's like, this is something that he very easily could have cut for space and he's like no 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 vampire slapping down u.s senator stays in it's interesting because i actually feel like his depiction of the u.s senator like uh is maybe a bit optimistic (laughs) like it's this because you know of course the other thing is like dio is as the cartoonish villain of a cartoonish cartoon would be is a complete sadist you know right he really enjoys causing and i think this is like one of the great things about vampire stories in general is the power play not only of like inflicting harm onto another person but like causing them to inflict harm harm further and further the sense of like manipulating and control and like that all of that like kinky power play stuff that undergrids a lot of the really fun stuff to talk about with jojo and so he's like i'm going to make this senator like run over innocent people in egypt you know it's like the center's like oh my god this is awful i hate this ah like i'm a good person i'm trying to do the right thing and it's like hmm i guess he got one of the democrats maybe but like even then i don't know it's it's joe manchin no i actually i actually like he's dead now but i would have trusted john mccain more than joe manchin please don't cancel me um (laughs) Right. It's like this, this depiction of like a U.S. senator who has no bloodlust in the Middle East is right. like, what? That's a very naive perspective, Con. I, I appreciate it. I need I need the modern version where it's just Ted Cruz. And instead of feeling bad, he's like, how am I going to get elected after this? And I just want Dio to just like appear next and be like, 
You're going to be lucky to be alive by the morning. Why are you thinking that far ahead? Boop! And then he's like back in the back seat. That's the version for 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 2021. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I also love that senator because it's like a, a particular con thing, which is like weird looking guy. Right. Like a lot of cons characters, and we brought this up in episode one, they don't have the kind of like typical anime look to them which he plays around with in a lot of really, really fun ways in his other work. But like in this one, you know, you're dealing with a bunch of like hyper macho, like, like walking Greek statues for the most part. Yeah. But this, this weird looking U S Senator is just kind of like, he looks like he's from like a Safdie brothers movie or something. You know, he's exactly, he's just sort of like a strange looking guy. And like, I, I feel like that is, those types of like weird character actor looking characters show up all the time in Khan's work. I don't have too, too much more to say about the OVA beyond that. It's worth watching, but I can't recommend if you're, if you're watching along with us, I would consider it optional. Yeah. Uh, You you know, like it's, it's great to come back and like watch the Dio fight and see the editing work, but I love Satoshi Khan, but like the David version as a whole is much better. I yes. think. Yeah. Um, I can already it's just tell, a better product. I can already tell from watching the David version so far that it's just like interestingly enough, for a director at, who edits as quickly as Khan does, the OVA is so slow with just everything. Cause it's made really cheaply. And you can tell because they're just kind of like panning across a lot of static animations for a lot of it and like you know there will just be shots of like it's dio talking but you can only see his feet you know right there's tons of stuff like that where it's just like ah i know that with like a higher budget and with the right format i can tell this this is like would whip my ass even further than it is but i'm all all that is to say like if you're a con completist like yeah jump in watch these three it's like a really weird 90 minute movie if you want to treat it that way yeah and like i don't know maybe you'll be intrigued and we'll check out the david version of the show and uh enjoy it probably more but it's it's a good you know your choice it as you said it's optional that said if you're gonna watch the david version i personally would skip season two well, arc two. So, the, the, well, right. More, yeah. more weirdness, right? So, if it wasn't bad enough that there's the OVA that starts in the middle, then skips to the end, and then ten years later they released the beginning. Why? If it's not, if that's not bad enough, it, in in terms of seasons, the David animation version has season one contains two arcs. It contains mm-hmm. the Phantom Blood, which is arc one, and functions more or less as Dio's backstory. Yes. Right. It's I the- love Phantom Blood. It's really I good. think it's I think it's amazing. It's, I, it's such a good self-contained story. I I'm just like over the moon about it. Yeah. I I agree with that completely. Although like Jonathan Joestar is not like the most He knows. Like by the end Araki knows. He's like Dio's the sauce in this yeah. in, in in this story, right? He's like Jonathan Joestar is just He's a good guy. He's just a nice guy. Kind of boring. Yeah. 
Right. Well, so here's, I mean, so here's some interesting things about Araki that make him particularly well suited for shonen manga that like I've, I've learned in my research. Um, shout out to the Wizard and the Bruiser podcast episode on this. They pointed me to a lot of good sources to this. Mm-hmm. So um, Araki, he's an interesting fellow, this manga artist. Um, he, his dad was a lover of art history. And so he grew up with art books around the house. Mm, That's how mm-hmm. he gets this interest in fashion and art history. He's not, he's a good fit for Khan too, because he's an anime guy that's into more than just anime. Yeah. 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 Right. Totally. And he's not unafraid to draw on it. Right. But he had two younger sisters. I think they were twins and his, I can relate to this. I have a younger sister. I love you, Liz, but you know, I mean, when we were kids, right. Um, his younger sisters bullied him mercilessly (laughs) like would cause mischief and then frame him this is (laughs) this is older sibling angst right and he says that's why he got into comics because eventually he would just come home from school stay in his room and read comics and not come out because he just didn't want to deal with his fucking sisters right (laughs) oh that's so funny it's so funny right but it's he he, like this idea of like people being like tormented is like by something that's like annoying, but weirdly close to them appears again and again in his, in his work. Right. So in a way he should be, isn't it? That's so good. Yeah. Cause like Dio shows up the way that the story is framed at the beginning is like, you get this kind of like typical, it's so weird to even say typical because there's already weird anime shit abound, but like, you know, Jonathan Joestar is growing up in this enormous Victorian home. And then Dio is this interloper from the lower class who kind of like breaks in and ruins everything. He is like a younger sibling. That it's like, his adopted brother. Yeah. Exactly. His adopted brother who like purloins his fucking life. Mm-hmm. Basically. It's, inc- it's so well done. Like, because the thing that I love from the get go is it's not just that, like, like Dio, because you could almost look at Dio as this kind of like sort of anti-hero at the beginning of like right. he like trying to, you know, overcome his own shitty background and rise up through the ranks and, you know, make it into the upper class. Like there's something kind of like, yeah, dude, go for it about it. But he quickly reveals himself to be a total sociopath. <laughs> right. And a, you know, a, a monster. And he's obsessed with Jonathan Joestar. He like his entire sense of being is wrapped up in his competition with this other person. It gets back to that, like Hegelian, like master slave thing again, where his entire sense of being is like bound in his desire to dominate Jonathan Joestar. So, so much so that he's willing to literally use a bizarre artifact to turn himself into a vampire so he can beat Jonathan Joestar and right. then the end arc, which the end of the arc, which is what sets up Stardust Crusaders, is he literally, how this works exactly isn't entirely clear, manages, even though he's just a decapitated head, to use laser vision to cut off Jonathan Joestar's head and plant his head on Jonathan Joestar's mm-hmm. decapitated corpse so he can literally become Jonathan Joestar. And it's right. only through like happenstance that he's like locked in a coffin and flung to the bottom of the ocean on Jonathan Joestar's body so that he, he you think is going to be safe from the world. And then I don't know, 
Jacques Cousteau or whatever, like digs his body up. And then by that point in time, it's the eighties and he's like, I'm free. It's the eighties. And now I've got Jonathan Joestar's body. And apparently Jonathan Joestar's body comes with magical stand powers, which we didn't know, but we're going to roll with it. We're just going to roll with it. Um, There's a lot of, did you ever read the, the web comic axe cop? I know of it. I've never read it. Well, so the, the gist of Axe Cop is it's a, the conceit of it is that it is an adult illustrator illustrating his younger cousins, like child, like toddler sized younger cousins, awesome. like stuff that he makes up as he, like, they're just having these fun conversations and the adult is just drawing them and turning them into like presentable professional looking comics. And so the, the way that these plots develop is absolutely ludicrous. They make less than dream logic sense. And, but it all kind of like flows. If you're just like willing to get on the childhood fun of it. And Joe, like Jojo has the exact same energy. I'm just like, look now suddenly he can shoot lasers out of his eyes. You just have to deal with it. Like it don't, don't worry about why just be invested in how, our hero gets around it, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So the other interesting thing about, I just love Dio as a villain, but the other interesting thing about, you say it makes less than dreamlike logic sense and that that's very juvenile. And on a plot level, that's true. But there is something else that Iraqi had that a lot of his other contemporaries didn't. And this has to do with these extracurricular ideas that he brings. Yes. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. He's also a true crime buff. Hmm. And in, in the eighties is when they, the popularized books started coming around, uh, regarding psychological theory about sociopaths. So this is one of the things I think that makes Jojo better than Dragon Ball Z is like in Dragon Balls in Dragon Ball or Dragon Ball Z, like the bad guys are just like bad guys, like Frieza's a sadistic villain. That's kind of like queer coded, but also like uh, cool looking and overpowered. So therefore interesting, right? Like, but you never really get anything, any sense of like freezes inner life, right? Yeah. Same thing with yeah, Goku, yeah, yeah. right? He, Araki was relatively unique in that he tried to like give Dio a backstory, give Dio a reason for, for being Dio, have him, even though he's a vampire behave the way, like a real life despotic leader would be where he's, you know, trying to get himself into a position of social power. He was abused by his alcoholic dad, you know, like ripped from the headlines sort of stuff, but it does lend it a little bit of weight. Mm-hmm. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I know you've got other reasons why you think Jojo's better than the average Shonen series. So let's, <laughs> I, I'd love to hear those. And, and, and then I, I do have a little bit of like a, a mind melter for everybody too, that I would just love to get into, but let's, let's go. In. Sure. Sure. So part of it is continuing with your theme of the extracurriculars. It's like the reason I love phantom blood is that it's this interesting blend of it, he, it's like he saw the parallels between two vastly different styles and found the exact point where they meet and went like dead on into that zone, which right. is like Victorian costume drama that's all about like uh inheritance and passing on like family tradition and you know these like sets of manners and this kind of like coming of age story structure that i think like anyone who's taken a high school english class is probably like loosely familiar with you know and 
than the the shonen like style as we described it previously in the episode where you have these kind of like morality tales of the hero being like so just and so badass that like everyone that he beats becomes his best friend and it's like Jonathan Joestar sits at the intersection of those points where he's like this well-heeled but kind of like a fail son fuck up for situation that he's in but he's so pure of heart and righteous that like you know the like uh, <laughs> uh robert speedwagon I, just saying the character's names out loud is like robert speedwagon and baron zeppeli yeah like they're they're so overcome by their um love of the like standing of this honorable man that they're right. like we're gonna roll with this guy and so he like Araki seems to have completely understood all of these like separate genre conventions. And yeah, I'm repeating myself, but he, he has found the exact way to meld them together. Like Dio's head onto Jonathan Joestar's body. He's just smashing shit together and it comes out as a like delight to observe, you know? Yeah. But what about the what about the carry on of the arcs though, right? Because like there, there's, it's also something to do with the way because the way that he thinks about arcs and time is just so fundamentally different. Yes. So, like the cool thing about it is that there are different JoJo's. There's like this passing on, like the inheritance question in the first arc becomes an in, a more interesting one because the show is kind of about this inherited legacy of this central family of the Joe star family as it crosses generations and oceans and countries and just sort of expands outward across time and ethnicity and ethnicities. Yeah. Like, so you get Joseph Joe star who like sucks he's like a rascal. He's this sort of like Indiana Jones character, but instead of him like fighting the Nazis, he's like sort of a Nazi collaborator, you know, like he's hanging out with like, uh, like Caesar Zeppoli, who seems to be sort of like an Italian fascist on the low. And like, there's kind of this weird, it's like, Oh, this is like, not the, person this isn't jonathan you know right this kind of generational decline to where then the third uh jojo is uh jojo koju who's this kujo sorry Sorry. my bad like the dog Um, like the dog of course because he's a rabid dog he's this (laughs) high school delinquent who you know is just snapping at everyone who comes near him which i think is like oh that's really cool like you're making each of these are like separate genres and the characters of each of them fit the genre in some way where you've got like this like morally pure, righteous Victorian hero who then is kind of degraded into this like pulpy Flash Gordon, Indiana Jones, uh, Tyrone Slothrop, if we want to go there style, like World War Two, you know, run and gun yeah uh, adventurer and then it degrades even further into the high school delinquent you know like wannabe yakuza tough guy right by the end of it you know well s- spoiler season six takes place in florida oh god <laughs> and the and is the female jojo and oh. i and she's actually like I, I i haven't watched stone ocean but my understanding is that it's like 
she's like the trailer trash Jojo. Mm, like, I mm-hmm. think Iraqi took a trip to Florida to like hang out in Florida to like get a sense of like the like modern Southern mentality. Like, that's fascinating. I'm I, so excited to see what that looks like. Right. I'm excited. People say Stone Ocean is stupendous. I, I haven't seen it, but it, so, they've started animating it. It's also fascinating that you bring up the uh, the fact that there is a, a, a female Jojo at some point, because mm-hmm. we, we've danced around it long enough. We have to talk about the beefcake side of things with this so show. So weird. Yeah. And the poses. Yes. Right. Because like, if you haven't seen this, like, D- Dio's ripped, but like... Dio's villain outfit has little heart decals all over it. Like it's like Lisa Frank designing a super villain outfit. And, (laughs) and that's not unusual for the, for the series. Like it, Araki says he's straight. He he's some characters are, are gay or bisexual. Canonically Dio is bisexual. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, Whereas like a lot of, a lot of anime has like a, a, a conflicted relationship with gender and with homoeroticism, like Jojo seems really, really influenced, really, really interested in just plain sticking your nose in the thinness of that line and almost like asking you as a matter of course, how does this make you feel? Does this make yeah. you feel good? Does this make you feel mm-hmm. bad? Does it make you feel both? I'd really like if it was both. Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting that like we, we talk sort of about like the sports and like jock response to Shonen, which is like, oh, these dudes are ripped. Let me go hit the gym. Mm-hmm. But what I love about JoJo is it's the first Shonen show that I've suggested like these dudes are ripped. I want to fuck them. You know? <laughs> and it, that's what it wants. Like that's, yes, the, that's, exactly. the, that's the desired reaction. And like, it's not even just like a thing that it's imposing like subliminally. It's kind of even in the show itself from what I've watched is like, no one is ever like Goku is hot in the world of Dragon Ball Z. Right. You know, but like, Jotaro being this like teen heartthrob, it rules. It's like, thank you for like seeing the same thing that I'm seeing here. You know, like it's, it is, I think that there's like absolutely this kind of, okay, let me, let me scroll back a bit. So in a lot of our episodes, particularly about the rebuilds in season one, we mentioned the way that animation can have this very complex relationship with the human body where it can allow for these like hyper stylish stylizations of form and like transformations of form and this sort of looseness about the boundaries of the, the human form Shonen does this a lot with like, where like, okay, so, you know, hero X has just whooped the ass of villain Y villain Y gets up and says, ha ha, this isn't even my final form somehow immediately takes like a year's worth of steroids. And in a few seconds, like grows three times their previous size. Right. You know, and there's like, 
there's some of that. I think there's always kind of like a implicit sexual thing going on there of like the power up and then the release of that power, you know? Yeah. Men grunting and, and, and having their like veins in their necks pop for 60 minutes on end. Totally. And I just, again, I'm having the same experience as an adult, as I described previously with watching Dragon Ball Z as a child, where it's like, this is the first show that I feel like is respecting what I'm watching and like is is acknowledging that that's a part of what's going on because like Dio being a vampire and specifically craving the blood of this particular bloodline like the you know trying to penetrate this other guy like to put it as bluntly as possible right and in doing so like pump his body up to absurd proportions it's like <laughs> yes it's all there like it's just it's it is saying the quiet part loud, finally, you know, saying, saying the quiet part loud. And instead of being like embarrassed about it, like putting the onus on you to be like, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm making this part bigger and underlining it. Look yes. at this part. I'm still telling the rest of the story. I'm still doing the shonen thing, but I'm doing it this way. Right. Feel things about it. I'm also doing it at like an incredibly artistically sophisticated level like a, a way that is like above and beyond dragon ball z in terms of the sophistication of iraqi's art but um because iraqi is a fine artist like yes his work as jojo's has in this style has he's he's done so much with it outside of the comic series he's he did art for the olympics he mm. drew a cover of of cell magazine a science magazine where like an enzyme is his stand it's weird you can find this on the <laughs> internet I think there was a cover of, correct me if I'm wrong, it might not be the right magazine, but like he did a cover of Vogue Japan where they- That makes perfect sense. They yeah. didn't have an artist. It, it came full circle. He's like, I'm just going to draw the outfit of that they made as like a, a JoJo's character. Yeah. The fits are crazy in this show as well. Right. It should just be noted. They're awesome. Like Jotaro's uh, modified- like schoolboy outfit, it rips. It looks so good. Like these dudes, every time they show up in a new place, I'm just like, damn, they got them off, man. Like they just like, they're killing it in this place. Everyone's <laughs> flossing. Every yes. fucking, well, not everyone. You haven't seen all the bad guys. There's some gross bad guys, but, um, you well, know. but that's the point is the bad guys are gross. And like, not only are the heroes like represented, because the thing is, is like Jojo, as you pointed out, is the heroes are not always good guys. But right. they always look good. Right. Know? So I think it's worth noting that, like, I, if you've never seen JoJo and, and you're an ally or you're LGBTQ and you're listening to us talk about this, two straightish, whitish sort of guys talking about this, it would be easy to, to, to think of this as fairly appropriative. And I guess mm -hmm. I wouldn't fault you, um, especially since there's all the. To, be generous, let's say politically incorrect stuff in the second arc, right? Yeah. Like yeah, the second yeah, yeah. arc is, is a mistake, I think, but this show does have a vocal throated, like beloving queer fan base. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, in America too. And I'll give you just a section. This is something that I found out this morning as we're talking. Have you, are you aware of the show? We are here on HBO. I think I've like seen ads for it, but I haven't watched it. It is, as my bandmate just informed me, a heartwarming reality show about a trio of drag queens traveling the country and spreading love. 
okay. Um, mm-hmm. I guess on on a recent episode, a neurodiverse trans young adult in America cosplays as Dio. No shit. As a, as a confidence building exercise. That rules. I love that. I love that too. It's so it's so wholesome. Mm-hmm. So, right. So like if an NBA player can like put up Goku stuff, then right. absolutely like a young trans person should be putting up Dio stuff like that rules. Yeah. I guess that's the issue that I take with a lot of like Dragon Ball Z and also bleach and a lot of shown stuff is it, is it does seem like sort of like for the, for the popular kids it, it's, it, and I, that's like a false binary that I don't want right. to buy into too much, but it I think certainly it didn't feel like it that way in the nineties. I'll say that much. <laughs> right. I don't like, feeling or thinking like an elitist, but something about Jojo just kind of feels like it's for the outsiders. You know, it's like, if you got, if you got picked on in school, if you didn't feel fucking normal, this in the same way that like Evangelion is for you, I think Jojo's for you too. Not like for you, like you will like it, but for you, like we made this for you. Yeah. 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 You you know what I mean? Um, I do want, cause I feel like we're getting into the heavier side of things. So I want to briefly put a pin in one, formal thing that jojo's does better than dbz please do which is time dragon ball z has a real problem with power creep and time creep where in that process of taking action from the page to the screen in the page i feel like toriyama is constantly suggesting that like more is happening that we just don't have the time to show you on the comic page right the Problem is the anime is just like takes that verbatim. So where the action is too fast to show, you know, right. The whole point is the characters start moving so quickly that it's imperceptible to the human eye, which is such a cop out. Mm -hmm. And that also allows them to do the sort of shit that I joked about previously, where it's like, Oh, the planet's supposed to blow up in five minutes. We're going to have full conversations between rounds of lightning, fast punches, and then we're just going to repeat the whole thing over and over again until 20 episodes have passed. Jojo takes a very different approach to action where it avoids both time creep and power creep by having basically about like three things happen per fight. Right. Where it's like a chess move. It's like it's a, a situation where like, oh, if I don't do this exactly correctly, I will die. Mm-hmm. Which remains the case no matter how powerful each character gets, where they have to figure out the exact moment to strike, the exact thing that their opponent is doing, how to subvert it, how to manage it. And like the solutions sometimes are funny, sometimes it's actually really clever, sometimes it's just like badass. But by limiting the action to such a contained scope, it solves the time problem because instead it's. It's not meant to be literal time passing where like, oh, all of them are taking five minutes to explain all of their plans before doing them. It's all like encoded into the substance of the fight rather than literally happening during the fight. You know what I mean? Yes. That's purposeful. Also, like Araki's given interviews about that, too, where he talked that's other than the political problems. That's his other problem with the second arc, which he's vocally critical of, of the second arc where he's like, it became Dragon Ball Z. I did -hmm. the power creep thing. I did the time creep thing. Like the bad guy in season two cars is like a demigod. He's like, it's, it's too much. He, 
he made the stand specifically to get away mm. from that. And there's things that he'll he'll do to like mess with that. Like so, for example, it's most of almost every stand is like some of them are very limited abilities, some of them have very broad abilities, but in general, not one of them is much better than the others. Just what your matchup is, right? So, like exactly, their styles make fights. It's so much like actual, more like actual boxing than the absurd, just like you know, beam war shit from Dragon Ball. Exactly. There's, I mean, but there are like stands that are like clearly like a little bit broken. Dio's stand a little bit broken. Jotaro's stand once he like gets also the time abilities a little bit broken. Right. He even makes fun of this in the next in in arc four, which is I think actually my favorite in part because it condenses things even more. Like it's just the story of a small town. It's a small mm-hmm. town murder mystery. It's like it's the, it's. Stardust Crusaders, but it's Nancy Drew instead of uh, Around the World in 80 Days. Oh, that rules. I'm it so rules. into it. It's, yeah. it's great. And like, but there is like a character whose stand is clearly fucking broken, but he's a dipshit. And multiple people comment him like, you have the best ability in the world and you lose every fight because you have no imagination and you're not smart enough to use it right. <laughs> like, if I had your ability, I would have conquered the planet by now. You moron. Like, multiple mm. bad guys, like, get mad at him for, like, your ability is so good. Why are you using it so badly? <laughs> <laughs> well, this, I think, is maybe leading into your your brain-melting point. But, like, the thing that makes the stand so cool is that they're, like, archetypical. Right. There's so much of a a personality and character to them so that they do what they do best or they do the thing that they do rather than just like, oh, this one's a million power level. This one's two million. You know, it's an expression of a certain type of being, you know, I, I agree completely. And I think tying that into, to the way that I think like Jojo is the Evangelion of Shonen. What what Evangelion is to Mecha, Jojo is to Shonen, I think. And I I think that because there is sort of a philosophy 101, metaphysics 101 underpinning to this arc in particular. Um, I don't think Jojo is as interested in exploring that as Evangelion is, but Jojo's never like devolves into confessional storytelling, right? Like you never get the sense that like Jojo's is about a Rocky. It's not. Right. Right. It's about the things that he thinks are cool. Exactly. Right. So in that sense, you can't so easily throw the philosophical subtext stuff away. And I bring this up, not just because we're talking about Jojo, because some of this is going to come up for the rest of Khan. Mm -hmm. When I think about archetypes, I think about psychologist Carl Jung. Of course. Yeah. The the go-to name. Right. The dude. Right. So like last season, we talked about Sigmund Freud, how, how Freudian analysis factors into Evangelion and the way that it talks about ego and, and sexual relationships and et cetera, so forth. Carl Jung was less horny than Freud. We should say Carl Jung, Swiss philosopher, psychologist, Freud's sort of protege, and then they kind of became rivals later. It's kind of like a Dio Jojo thing. Um <laughs> That's perfect. I love that. Uh, the extrovert introvert thing that young, uh, that we still talk about today, young coined that and young, uh, 
got into this idea of of the collective unconscious, uh, which has no basis in scientific fact, we should say, but right. it's still like an interesting thing to talk about. The, the yeah. idea of the collective unconscious is that there are these storylines and images that seem shared by cultures that are in a sense universal. They have something to do with the the basic generic human experience. He got into these ideas through analyzing dreams, right? Everyone in the world has the falling dream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just a universal experience. We don't know why. We we don't really have a good idea as to why. Everyone right? has tripped at some point. <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> well, not everyone's tripped, but maybe everyone should with the correct set and setting. <laughs> and and so Jung had this idea that his basic idea of analytic psychology as distinct from Freud's psychoanalysis is that it, it gave like a, a purpose for life. He said that like the project of human life is something like integrating yourself, the part of you that you believe is a hero the protagonist of your own story with your, your shadow, your shadow mm-hmm. self, the things about yourself that you repress things that reside in the collective unconscious, the things that make you afraid, etc. Right. Right. He, he has this idea that that's sort of like the project of, of self-actualizing is making is integrating these two pieces that everyone, everyone has. Right. Again, no basis in scientific fact, but I think uh, not so easily disproven as Freud's ideas have been. It's interesting because like Freud is closer in method to uh, harder science, but Jung is much more vibey, right. <laughs> in, like just about every way. But I think that there's something that I've 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 had an interest in Jung for a long time uh, since being a tool fan in high school, basically. And sure. uh, yeah, I, I think there's something very like thought provoking about his ideas in in a way that I. Uh, even if they don't quite nail down to science, I, I think that there's a lot worth mulling over in the way that you're describing. Yeah. So, and this is something that made that Khan doesn't get into in this show, but maybe he would have done a whole Jojo thing if he did get into this idea that um, mm-hmm. one of his repeated motifs that's going to come up is the difference between like your, sh- your, your outer self, your persona, the mask you put on and who you really are on the inside and the way they come into conflict. Absolutely. Yes. Right. I see the stands as a literalization of that dichotomy mm-hmm. in a way the person's stand is a truer representation of who they are on the inside i love this oh, right go off go off like so like jojo is a, a juvenile delinquent but his stand star platinum is is a stoic warrior is like is like a bare knuckle boxer in service of truth um mm-hmm. Right. And so the idea is that like Joe Turo's juvenile delinquency, um, the way he sort of writes off his mother, the way he say he doesn't care about his family lineage is a front. Yeah, absolutely. And, and who he is on the inside is someone who wants to fight for a worthy cause. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and in going it, instead of his violence being like just random as a, as a kid, by going on this journey around the world to save his mom and fight Dio, he finds a power bigger than himself. He finds a reason to be more truly himself. And it's only when he really does that, that he like unlocks star platinum's true abilities. Right. That's dead. I on. Think that's, I love it. Yes. That's what it is. And, and on that note, I think it's interesting that most of the stands are tarot cards. Mm-hmm. Right. 
I got to go into this super briefly. I'm going to make this as fast as I can. We could do a whole episode on tarot cards. Tarot cards originated in Cairo, Egypt, the Mamluk Sultanate. Oh, they go to Cairo, shit. Egypt, and then are exported to uh, Renaissance Italy. Hirohiko Araki is a Renaissance Italy fanatic. And tarot cards were just a normal deck of, of playing cards. They're the deck of cards you have today, except there's a fifth suit. They're called the Trump suit. And the Trump suit doesn't have numbers. It just has an ascending order of, of cards in it. Now, what the names of those cards are and what, what hierarchy they're supposed to be in has been reordered throughout the years. But the standard tarot card deck that we think of today was codified in part by the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which included poet W.B. Yeats and also famous occultist Aleister Crowley. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Aleister Crowley's Book of Thoth, it's not the only work on tarot cards called the Book of Thoth, codifies the modern, what's called the Major Arcana, which is the Trump set. They weren't the originators of the idea of using tarot cards as, as purely as divination tools that idea existed before, but they did help publish it. They weren't the first people who published it, but they, it was widely accessed, right? So this is the way we think about tarot cards today as a, as a divination tool. I don't think tarot cards literally predict the future or tell you the truth. I think of them more as a metaphysical Rorschach test. They Absolutely. Use, yes. Right. That's my they experience use, as well. Jungian archetypes, right? We're going to use multiple interpretable archetypes and put them in front of you. And by interpreting them together, we're going to learn something about who you are and where you are right now. And this can be a meditative analytic tool, right? That's, that, that's I think, the right way to interpret the proper way to interpret tarot cards. Maybe right, not proper. I don't know which of those I prefer yet. I'll think about <laughs> it. Um, I'm going off fast because I know this is a long episode. One way to interpret the major arcana, though, the tarot cards, of which all the stands in Star Wars Crusaders are part of, including the heroes, is that the major arcana in a row is the journey of self-actualization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right-hand path magic, which also came up in Evangelion. Uh, by the way, the tarot cards are associated with the Hebrew alphabets. There's a Kabbalah reference there. And one of the traditional ways that you sort tarot cards out for divination is in the shape of the Sephiroth. Evangelion ties into everything. So um, do they also have come in the shape of the turtle? The uh, shape of the Gamera? Uh, oh, I, I was wondering you were getting that. We need like, I need like a little button that makes the Gamera roar whenever we do. Um, Gamera is my stand. Um, <laughs> by the, well, so he, well, we'll get so, into mine by the end of this rant, but so <laughs> this is why it's interesting that, that Dio stand is the world. Joe Taro's is, is the star. Mm -hmm. And that the first episode of cons OVA is when you introduce Izzy because Izzy gets the fool mm -hmm. in the modern interpretation of the tarot. The fool is the first card of the tarot deck. Its number is zero. It's also the only card that remains in a normal playing card deck. You get jokers. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, this is where the joker comes from, right? Okay. So the idea is that the fool is supposed to symbolize like naivete is a positive version, but the, or, or is the negative version. But the positive version is something that can speak only truth, even if it's funny, something that can only grow and evolve from there. And you go through the various tarot cards. It's worth noting the... Um, Avdol, 
who's one of the other Stardust Crusaders. He's the second stand you see in the David animation version in the comic. His stand is the Magician, Magician's Red. That's card one. So you begin as a fool, you become a magician. That's your pathway on the journey to enlightenment. Magic is your first step from naivete toward the end, right? There's a central sort of chunk of the tarot cards that are considered like in general, not the best, although there are no like bad tarot cards, but you get like death, the devil, the hanged man, which is Jesus or Odin, uh, and the tower, which is actually like the one really scary tarot card to get. They all sort of come in a chunk. And then after that, you get the celestial arcana, the planetary arcana. The first celestial card is the star, right? Uh And the the last, so it's, you've triumphed over, over adversity. You've, you're beginning your celestial voyage. You're a star. You're shooting star, star, baby. Yeah. Star platinum. The last card in the tarot deck card 21. Remember just like our first season, it starts at zero. (laughs) The last card is the world. Mm Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's Dio stand. What does what does the world mean? So the world is usually depicted as an intersex or hermaphrodite human. The world has mastered all four of Aristotle's elements: fire, water, earth, and air. Your powers combined. It's Captain Planet. Surprise! He's also the world. Right. 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 And the world can can symbolize the end of a cycle. And the beginning of a new chapter in in your life, because like the world revolves, right? Mm-hmm. And every tarot card has an in has an inverted meaning to like a positive and negative interpretation, right? Here's the way a I self I, and a I, shadow I, self, basically. a shelf and a, a self and a shadow self. So at the end of Stars Crusaders, Joe Taro his his stand becomes Star Platinum hyphen the world. He has the same power Dio has, the time stopping ability. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's different is the way they use it, right? Dio wants to stop time to stop history. He wants yes. to become God and remain God. Yeah. That yeah, yeah, he, yeah. he wants to become an ascended master and remain an ascended master. That's his goal, right? Pure seeking of power, mm-hmm. right? That's why all of his subjects are. If you look at the other stand assassins that use the tarot cards, all their personalities correspond to the negative interpretation of what of what the tarot card could be, right? When Jotaro becomes the world, he's the he's the he's the correct inversion. He's the upward facing world. Wanting things to continue, wanting time in fact to go forward. For he's a new cycle be, to begin. Yes. A new cycle will begin. A new He's going to pass the baton to the next Jojo. Yes. Wow. This really, his, I love this. History will continue. Right. And he's beginning a new chapter in his life. Not as a juvenile delinquent, but as a Marine biologist, he becomes a Marine biologist. I don't know why doesn't exactly make sense, but he's become an adult. Yeah. He gets a, he gets a career. He resides transparently in a power outside of himself. Dio becomes the world because Dio wants to stop the world from turning. Jotaro becomes the world because Jojo needs the world to keep going. Yes. Yeah, right? dude. It's and, Ugh. and, and you realize that Dio only has the world because it was in Jonathan's body. Mm-hmm. Dio has no standability on his own. He gets his vampiric ability from a mask 
all he is is a mask. He's all persona. There's no person. He's, he's empty inside, right? That's, and that's why he can't use the world properly the way Jotaro can. That's why it takes him six months of training to get like two seconds of stopped time. And Jotaro learns to stop time for three seconds within like 10 minutes of fighting him. Wow. There's my galaxy brain. There's your quick history of like young where Crowley comes into it. How relates to Evangelion? The tarot card interpretation of Stardust Crusaders. There we go. I did the thing. <laughs> I've been so, waiting like months to give that to you. That is amazing. I mean, like it, it feels like we did the OVA of the human instrumentality podcast season about Joe star just like right there <laughs> it took a lot of practice wow dude oh my god i was i was gonna make a lot of jokes about gravity's rainbow because i could because there's a whole tarot sequence in the final sequence of gravity's rainbow uh where a bunch of the characters also get their own tarot cards assigned to them and so that's my stand of course is uh I guess the rocket from gravity's rainbow. If yours is Gamera, that's mine. Um, <laughs> Come out love and rockets. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. I love that. Uh, I, I don't know how to top that dude. That's amazing. But if I can at least try and draw a line further into the future for our next episodes, please do. I don't necessarily know if particularly the archetypes as designed by Jung and as uh, further invested into via the tarot that you've described are the ones that Cone is building on for the rest of his work. I absolutely agree that the shadow as a concept, it, it appears over and over and over and over again in all of the stuff that we're going to talk about for the rest of this season. But there's also... I think in Paranoia Agent in particular, there's a kind of like Zodiac theme where the characters correspond with animals and there's this kind of archetypical structure that repeats endlessly. Yes. Well, that, and some there are some tarot decks where the major arcana is mostly the, the Zodiac. Mm-hmm, that makes a ton of sense. So I'm glad that we have taken the time to like give this incredibly dense version of this in probably the last place that anyone looking at the title of this episode would have expected. (laughs) That's how this stuff works, man. It's, this is the Shonen episode. You had to deal with like conversations about Hollywood video and renting VHSs in order to get to the big finale at the very end. In order for us to stop time. And we didn't even get to any of the prince stuff <laughs> or the endless animal abuse that happens in, uh, in Jojo. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of, it's weird. Like, Animals get owned constantly in this show. Um, so if you've made it this far and you're like, Oh, I guess I'll check this out. But you're also the person that needs to check if the dog dies. Let me just tell you up front, all of the dogs die. <laughs> uh, rest in peace, Iggy. I'm sorry that you got owned by a guy named vanilla ice. That's just how it is sometimes. <laughs> but Vanilla Ice's stand is cream? Is hmm. he like trying to talk shit about J- Eric Clapton? 
Did well, he I mean, like predict that Eric Clapton would be an anti-vaxxer and oh, deserves I mean, Eric to be dragged? Has always sucked. Like we don't even need to get into like before Eric Clapton was an anti-vaxxer, he was a horribly racist asshole. And it's a fucking tragedy that he went to number one playing I Shot the Sheriff, and Bob Marley never had a number one in his entire career. Fuck Eric Clapton. Sweet dreams, everyone. <laughs> 